You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. My guest today is Professor Giorgio Parisi, physicist and Nobel Prize winner. Giorgio, man, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It is such a pleasure having you here. Um, I'm curious, just to kind of get some insight into your background, what was it that got you interested in physics and kind of what made you want to study it at university? Well, when I was an, an undergraduate, I had no idea of what I would do at, at, at university. I mean, I was not thinking too much. I know that I liked very much mathematics, and uh, I like, and uh, I was interested in physics, not so much interested in biology. But when I had to decide for the university, the point I really discovered that I had no idea of what the mathematicians were, were doing in the 20th century. Because all history of mathematics that uh, I read were ending at the end of the 19th century. And that for sure, because the mathematics of the 20th century is too hard to explain. So most popular books were not discussing mathematics in the 20th century. Why the physics of the 20th century? Maybe it's difficult to grasp, but uh, the fact that people discovered the quantum mechanics, this new kind of mechanics, the fact that they discovered the nuclear energy, of course, the nuclear bomb, and nuclear power ups, and so on, that they were discovering new particles, all these type of things is something that one could know. On the other hand, the mathematics was something like a black hole. So I decided, I think that I decided for physics because at least I knew what I was going to do. And as I mentioned, you, of course, won the 2021 Nobel Prize. You reached into and so the summit of intellectualism. Yet out of curiosity, for people to get, I guess, some more context into you and your life, did you show a lot of promise academically as a young child? Did people have high expectations for you? When I started at the university, I was very interested, I still was very interested in mathematics. So I followed some extra courses in mathematics or respect to physics. But because, and also I was, remember that at that time, I think that one, of the, of the physics that were doing main physics, uh, standard physics, I would say that I was one of the most competent uh, learned in mathematics. But uh, indeed, from, I, it happened to me to write a few times a, a mathematics paper, but only just a few ones. And for people listening now, I'm curious, was physics something that you 
were intrinsically motivated to follow? Were you good at a subject like maths? Um, I'm just curious, you know, how you actually ended up kind of committing to it. Did parents and mentors or friends push you in that direction? What was it that kind of uh, prompted you into making that decision to go down the path of physics? Well, I mean, at, at university, we, were, we had to follow some kind of courses. I mean, the courses were most or less obligatory compulsory. So you have a list of courses that you have to follow. Out of 17 courses, 15 were compulsory, and you have freedom only for two of them. And after, for the, the thing that was very important at university, that uh, at the end of four years at university, we have to do a real research thesis, like like for like PhD thesis, somewhat simple, but it was something that typically took uh, one year or, or something less than one year, but. Uh, Something that was really a research paper that should be published on a, most of the case was a research paper that finally was published. So for that things, one had the complete freedom to choose between all professors at university. Also, many people were doing this kind of thesis outside the, the, the university nearby lab and so on. Yeah, and perhaps it's worth me saying, you know, of course, that to win one Nobel Prize is just something that I don't even have the lexicon to describe what an achievement that it is. But for the people that will have picked up your book or that may be familiar with your story, they will know that you actually almost won the Nobel Prize twice. And as the story goes, in 1973, you were involved in a team of researchers uh, that came pretty close to winning it. You didn't make the crucial last link that researchers like Frank Wilczek and others later did in the early 2000s that then gave them uh, the Nobel Prize. Uh, so just out of curiosity, you know, because there were, I think, about 16, 17, 18 years between you losing the Nobel Prize to you then winning it, uh, but that's still a substantial amount of time. So I guess what was it like dealing with, you know, originally losing the Nobel Prize, if uh, if you will? No, 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 I mean, the Nobel Prize, I mean, I did the reserves, I mean, in 1973, I was working on some problem, and I think that if I found the solution of that problem, I could have won the Nobel Prize in the year 2000 and something. The point was the point was the following: that there was there were many people that were studying a given problem that was connected to find the theory of strong interaction. For the things was finally found by by Gross, Wilczek, a police at the end uh, that year in, uh, in summertime. And I, in springtime, I was uh, nearly very near to, uh, to, to this thing because I had uh, some discussion with Toft that, uh, that did a, a very important piece in this direction. And the only thing that we had to put, uh, when if you want something that works, you had to put a few things together. So the thing that we know, all the ingredients, 
but uh, it did not came in our mind to put the ingredient, uh, the ingredient, the right ingredient together. We stick to the wrong ingredient, so the things was not working, and uh, uh, we left this thing out. The thing that was quite stupid on my side, because I'm sure that if I was thinking about the problem more time, uh, probably I would have found uh, the solution, because the solution was something that I, I, I knew. It was something that I, I thought, I, because the solution was something that I thought that was wrong, for wrong reasons. So anyhow, so I was uh, really interested to some of the problem. Toto was interested also to quantum gravity. I was interested to second on the first transition. And um, the other arrived, uh, arrived. On the other hand, I think that uh, it would be, it would be a, a, been a nice thing because to, if, you, if, if you go in this direction, I would not have gone another direction in which I've done a very interesting things. So I have no, really I have no regret. As I was writing, as I wrote in the book, Genegret Vienna, and also I have nothing to regret. In the 300 plus episodes that we've done, we have spoken with numerous uh, elite performers. And a common theme we've realized is that for some people, failure, missing out, a major setback can be quite the demoralizer. Yet for other people, there are people with a certain psychological makeup that when they, for instance, miss out on a Nobel Prize or they have a big setback in their business or in their relationship or at school or at university, they then use that as rocket fuel to then go to the next step. So I'm curious in your case, when it came out that Wilczek and co. won the Nobel Prize. Did you, for instance, have serious regrets about that? And, or did that lead to you becoming a better scientist, a better person, a better researcher? I don't have any regrets. At that time, I was saying, what a uh, stupid has been. How <laughs> uh, could I have stupid? But, uh, I mean, it's... Uh, on the other side, I knew that I was trying to do many things in parallel. And when you do many things in parallel, there's something that escapes you. On the end, I think that uh, that was nice because at the end, I, I gave a very good... This was something that was not particularly deep. I mean, we are, we are running few people in that direction and... Uh, other people arrived first, they were at the more um, the, the more brilliant than us. But that would be that if I had done a great discovery in high energy physics, this would have probably polarized me into high energy physics. While I think that many of the very interesting things that I've done was uh, jumping from uh, high energy physics to other disciplines. Throughout your career, you made some pretty notable shifts in terms of kind of what you would study. So, for instance, what I found interesting about you is that you dabbled in theoretical physics, you dabbled in experimental work, you went from animal behavior to phase transitions. 
And this seems kind of counter to perhaps what many scientists will do in the sense that many people will become hyper-niched in on one topic and they will kind of just stick to that and become a true expert in that. Um, But I'm curious in your case, did you guide your career based on, for instance, just the curiosity that you had at the time? Or was it kind of what the department wanted you or the funding wanted you to study? Um, I'm just curious if there were kind of any principles that you used to kind of decide what it was that you would study throughout your career. This is the kind of things that you don't plan. I mean, it's, uh, it's, the point is just curiosity. I think that uh, people are driven by curiosity. On the other end, I knew that sometimes arriving in one field from outside, one brings a new, some kind of new toolbox or new uh, instrument that people in that field do not have, and that can be successful. So I knew that uh, in some senses that exchange field is something that from time to time is something that uh, is useful. The other thing that I knew that sometimes in a given field you are stuck. People are stuck, it's very difficult to move. So uh, the idea was that if in the meanwhile you go to another field, that's good. But I think I was really driven by circumstances. I mean, uh, for example, when I went to Paris, I made a lot of friends there, and I was working with the friends that were in Paris. And uh, sometimes you discover by speaking to people or going to seminar or reading some, some on the, something, the literature, there's something interesting. And uh, the things that sometimes you try to, to study the problem because you think that you can solve much, much faster, very fast. However, sometimes uh, this is to not, uh, uh, that's not true. It takes much more time. Sometimes you don't solve at all. But uh, you are sometimes you are very optimistic about that. That is one of the reasons that you move to, at least in my case. But I mean, most of the thing was curiosity, curiosity, and uh, hope. We sometimes uh, is not well founded that you can make a, a strong uh, leap forward. That is very interesting, and and another thing that I'm quite interested about is that you say in the book that often the best contributions to a life in science happen by accident. And this got me thinking that, of course, you know, you are known uh, for your contributions to the field of complex systems. And in any complex system, there's always the element of randomness or chance, which is adaptive in a complex system. So I'm curious, you know, in the case of your life, in your career, what role has randomness or chance, being in the right place at the right time, having the right mentors, knowing the right people? What role has that played in the success of your life? I think that uh, I think that this uh, that had a very very important role because uh, uh, in the same way that uh, that I am lost by 
small amount, the, the discovery that you were mentioned before in 73, there are many discoveries that I just, I just uh, happened that, uh, that I got interested in, in the field just by, by chance. And um, that, and, and you see, because the most difficult things in some case, well, at least for, for me, is uh, to find, a, I think, but for everybody to find a good subject to work. A good subject to work should be, a, is a subject which you, at the end, you are right to discover something. That it should be a difficult subject, but not too difficult, because if the subject is too difficult, you you may work on uh, many, many, many years, and you find nothing. For example, Einstein in the 20s or in the 30s worked for 20 years trying to find a unified theory of gravitation with other interaction and so on. And then it was something that was impossible at that time. This nowadays we have some idea, but we don't have the solution. But Einstein at the time had no possibility to get anything that makes sense and spent 20 years in that direction. So sometimes one goes in the wrong direction and you cannot say in advance. So the things that you is important that you have some kind of feeling just when you hear some interesting problem and you have the good uh, attitude, I mean, that you understand if the problem is really interesting, that you can do something or not, and that you jump, uh, jump on it. So I remember just for these things, I remember that one I was, uh, uh, I was in Stockholm in 2022 for the Nobel Prize ceremony. I mean, the Nobel Prize was uh, given to me in Rome in 2021, but I was invited to the 22,000 and um, Prize. And uh, I was, uh, and uh, I had a few conferences, there were and one conference a student asked me if I would come uh, to, if I had the possibility to speak with myself 50 years ago, if I if I would, which suggestion I would give. And at the end of the day, I, this was a quite a very difficult question, because I think that for everybody it's a difficult question to know what to say to your young ego, 20 or 10 or 50. <laughs> Yes, I go. In the end, I said that I wouldn't say nothing because I, I think that I, have, uh, that I had a lot of chances and anything that I would say may have derailed things in the wrong direction and I will not have the chance to get uh, some of the things that uh, I had done. So I think that would be very, very dangerous to give any suggestion. What was the biggest obstacle that you had to overcome in the uh, in this kind of journey and the career that you've been on? Well, I think that uh, I think that for these things I was quite lucky because I was living in Rome 
that had a very excellent uh, theory group. The people in Rome uh, uh, realized, I mean, they were quite confident that a very good, uh, that there was a very good chance to become a brilliant physicist. And uh, I, I got just two years more, two years after the, the thesis, a semi-permanent position that became a permanent position. So I, I practically did not have any problem. So I got uh, 25 years and something, a, a permanent, uh, 24 years and something, a permanent, a permanent position, nearly permanent position. So I did not have any problems, any worries uh, to find a permanent position, to find a job. So from that point of view, I was quite lucky. And also the type of work that I was doing left to me complete uh, freedom. And uh, I was I had also the chance to become a professor in Rome at a good university when I was quite uh, young, at 32. So I think that uh, from the, this point of view, I did not have any professional uh, professional obstacle. Of course, uh, the obstacle were in problems that sometimes the problems were too difficult uh, to, to understand. For example, I remember that, for example, I wanted to have, to have some better theory or confinement of quarks and so on. I was thinking of that for many, many times, but practically nothing very interesting came out. So sometimes the problems were too difficult to, to be solved, but that is part of the life. And on this point, uh, one thing that I actually found surprisingly inspiring uh, from the book was it was the times in which you talk pretty openly and honestly about how you dealt with dealing with obstacles, dealing with failure, dealing with difficulty. And I, I would like, just like to read a, a small passage, uh, if I may. You talk about a time in which you had run an experiment that had, had significant results. Uh, so in the case of research, you'd run an experiment. The p-value, the significance value, was less than 0.05, the kind of... Uh, the hallmark that scientists use to suggest if something is, is a significant finding or non-significant finding. Um, and you said uh, in the book, you know, that you arrived at this outcome, but all joking aside, you had no idea. You say, all joking aside, I had no idea what I was doing. After the experiment worked, you commented, it was as if I'd gone into a tunnel and then found myself on the other side. Uh, so I'm curious, you know, in the case of that, uh, you know, when you get stuck with a problem or you feel stuck, what was the process that you used to get through that? Because, of course, most people, they, when they're kind of in that creative phase, whether that's someone getting stuck trying to come up with a new business idea or a business plan or a student revising for an exam or uh, somebody going through any kind of creative phase. Many people know about, you know, the writer's block or getting stuck. 
And overcoming that can be one of the hardest things that people kind of go through. So I'm just curious, you know, when you do get stuck, what was that process that you used to kind of go through that difficulty and get through to the other side? This depends on character. I think that there are some physicists that when they get stuck, they have great character. They go on at the end of the day. They succeed to solve the problem. And myself, when I the tendency that when I get stuck in one problem, to go to look to another problem, <laughs> and maybe coming back to that problem ten years or five years, a few years later, because if you leave the problem, first all you can look back to the problem with a fresh, fresh mind. And in the meanwhile, other people may have done some other progresses that things may be solved. So my, my particular attitude was not to, to attack they say the same problem for a long time without uh, without success. Of course, this does not mean that I studied this problem for a very long time. For example, I spent many, many years in doing simulations on computer simulation of spin glasses or computer simulations of quantum chromodynamics, but that I was not stuck in the sense that each time I was doing things in a better way, so it was a gradual progress, but not really that you find a mountain in front of it and you don't are not able to to go on. Man, and and another thing that I'm interested in is that Throughout your career, as I've kind of talked about today, you obviously flirted with the Nobel Prize, and um, which got me thinking about how you would go about generating hypothesis and deciding on, for instance, what to spend your time on. Um, because, for instance, was it the case that you were someone that was very active in the creative process? You were always writing down ideas. You were journaling. You were speaking to people, trying to liaise and come up with new experiments. Or, you know, was it the case that perhaps you were more passive? There's numerous cases of people that, you know, they say their best ideas would come to them in the shower or on a walk or in a dream. Uh, so I'm curious, you know, what was the process that you used to kind of come up with creative ideas? Because, again, this is a process that is not just specific to science. This is something that transcends fields. This is a- a- applicable for the independent content creator is it's applicable for the student trying to come up with a creative project for a dissertation is applicable for someone running their own business there are so many kind of different uh things that this is is applicable for so what was that kind of process that you used i think for i mean i think the many things that i was thinking on uh uh, for example, so many ideas come out in, in the bed when you are going to sleep, when you wake up in the morning. Of course, for other, it depends for the things. I mean, uh, other times you have to, you have to, uh, to discuss with other people. What I found very useful, I mean, uh, when I was starting to study something and I had done only a partial pro- uh, uh, 
uh, partial progress. I mean, I was, I am in the middle of doing studying something and doing only partial progress. It was uh, to go to the office of someone and explain what I was doing. And that was something that uh, was very helpful to me. Not so much to the poor guy, but at least was helpful to me because uh, sometimes I, I have the, um, I mean, I try to think some sense too fast jumping some intermediate step. And uh, of course, if you jump some intermediate step, is um, you can go very fast, but uh, first of all, you can go in the other in the wrong direction. Also, intermediate steps are important uh, for for what uh, what one is. Uh, I mean, to understand better what they're doing. So, when uh, you have to explain something to someone, you have to first to say things in a clear, comprehensible way. And that is helpful also for you because you have a clear, comp comprehensive version of what uh, you're doing. Man, I absolutely love what you just said because I, all too often, I think that I really know kind of a topic or idea. In my own mind, it seems like my knowledge of that is perfect. And then when you have to explain it to someone else, only then do you really begin to realize that you know you don't actually know it that well. Um, another Nobel laureate who was a heavy proponent of this was, of course, Richard Feynman. Feynman was a big believer that if you couldn't explain something to a young child, then you didn't really know it that well at all. Um, so I'm just kind of curious, you know, do you kind of agree with Feynman, Bade? Yes, yes, I remember this quotation of Feynman. It's, it's, it's very, very nice. Unfortunately, I had a very few contact uh, with uh, with Feynman, and uh, I was uh, for two weeks in Kentuck, where Feynman was there. But uh, we, we had a very few chance to speak together. So I mean, I remember once a discussion with Feynman, but not something very, very deep, very interesting. Very, not of something particular. How big was Richard Feynman for the field of physics? Well, Feynman, well, certainly Feynman, Feynman had a great, Feynman had a very great idea, very important idea. The point, one of the things was, first of all, was his reformulation of quantum mechanics. Was the reformulation of quantum mechanics that uh, make what people call a path integral approach. That is the much, I mean, it's a very clear way to present the quantum mechanics. And after it became a very a crucial point in order to do computation um, in quantum mechanics. I mean, to extend the quantum mechanics to, I mean, it was a fundamental. And one of the amusing things, that uh, happened that uh, Dirac in uh, 32 made uh, something very similar to, to Feynman. And uh, I, uh, he, never, uh, he never arrived to Feynman uh, formulation. He stepped only just, uh, I mean, uh, one step. I mean, uh, he did a nine step over 10 to arrive to Feynman formulation. 
And what was amusing that uh, uh, I read on a book that there was a conversation about with Feynman and Dirac, and um, Feynman asked Dirac, why has not done the last step to arrive to his formulation? And Dirac answered, well, in reality, I did. I know your formulation, but I was thinking that it was useless. <laughs> that was typical of Dirac of not of writing only things that uh, writing the list. Anyhow, these things was fundamental. The other fundamental things of Feynman was the complete reformulation of quantum field theory. Of course, the Nobel Prize was to, to taken with Tomonaga and Schwinger, but the formulation of Schwinger or Tomonaga was extremely difficult to, to work with. And Feynman formulation was much, much simpler, much physical intuition, so on. So, so, so I invented what people call Feynman diagrams, and that was a really fundamental thing. The other thing that was uh, really very deep that uh, was in the 70s, in the end of the 60s, where people were working on, on uh, deep neurotic scattering. Well, it, it was important to revive the idea that strong interactions were, were described by theory. But I mean, Feynman was really a genius and he had this immense capacity of explaining things in a simple way, in a way that people can understand. And the progress that he made were really incredible. And as you write towards the end of your book, Richard Feynman allegedly said that science is like sex. Sometimes something useful comes out, but that's not the reason we're doing it. Um, so what did you think that Feynman meant uh, when he said that? So I, I think that I, I wrote, I think that I hope that was here in the book, that is something that is attributed to Feynman, but no one is able to pin out exactly when Feynman said, when Feynman certain not written things, and it's possible Feynman said in some time, but it's not possible to pin out exactly. So it's only attributed to him. Of course, it's something that it's some kind of humor that Feynman could have certainly done. Your book is obviously written as a memoir, but towards the end, you also discuss the challenges that science in the modern era has faced reputationally, particularly in light of the pandemic. Would a character like Richard Feynman, should he, of course, be alive now, help to restore some of the faith in science? I think that the things that are written by Feynman, uh, are you joking, Mr. Feynman, and things like that, is something that uh, would be very important to help people to trust science. Also, the other book, of your book, I've forgotten the name, because it's just the things that uh, is important, that you see how science is done, because the people... Uh, people are missing is the process of uh, constructing science. Because the process, the thing that I think people are missing is that science is, I mean, you, the fact that you write something on a paper, 
that someone writes something on the paper, it's not enough to have a discovery. The discovery should be validated by reaching a consensus by scientists. And the consensus by uh, reaching a consensus by scientists is something that is a, a process that takes a certain amount of time because people have to read, to understand the argument, to verify it. And also the thing that is quite important is that, uh, uh, for example, to write the equation of general relativity the first time, you need a genius like Einstein. But to verify that the questions are correct, you don't need a genius. It's something that a thousand of people, a lot of people around us that can verify. So what happens is that the, if some, something is accepted, you get a consensus, this means that it goes under the verification of many, many people that at the end trust what, what is written. And what, what makes science, in some sense, uh, one should trust science is just because of this process of verification by peer of other people that uh, all repeat the experiment or repeat the computation and so on in such a way that the chance of being wrong is, is extremely small. And in terms of helping to restore that trust in science, in the domain of physics, you know, you're very lucky because now you have many popular kind of science communicators. You've got people like, here in the UK, we've got Dr. Becky, Professor Brian Cox. Over in the States, you've got people like Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, these are celebrities that, of course, have sparked a great interest in helping people uh, from outside the world of physics kind of come in to learn about the topic without having to go to university and get a degree in that. In that. Um, and in their own right, they've kind of become celebrities in doing so. So I'm just curious, you know, as, as a Nobel Prize winning physicist, do you think that people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, people like Brian Cox, are good for the world of physics? And do you think that they could help restore some of the trust in the field that you say, of course, you think has been lost? I think that to popularize what is done is something that is what people do in the science is something that is extremely, is extremely important. And uh, this is some, this is for many reasons. Also because I think that uh, the way that people science is done, the way that people scientists think, is something that is would be useful for people to try to try to judge what happens in the world in some uh, scientific way. I mean, one of the things that is typical of uh, scientists uh, that one. If I read, for example, or some some scientific claim, I want to understand why. I want to understand uh, if the claims are founded, not founded, with the evidence which is not the evidence. And uh, this attitude, or try to understand by yourself, if something's right, is not right, to judge the value of the evidence. And if the value of the evidence is not good to disregard what people say, is something that if people could transport this type of attitude in for many other situations, for their personal life or also for politics and so on, I think that would be extremely important. So, 
Yeah, man, and it's certainly a great skill to communicate in such a way that perhaps brings people into that field that otherwise may not be interested on a topic or a field. So I totally agree. Um, if we were to shift gears, I appreciate that, of course, you're obviously a very busy man. Um, but I'd love for you to tell me about the moment that you knew you were going to win the Nobel Prize. I mean, uh, the moment, uh, I mean, I had no certitude whatsoever that I was going to win the Nobel Prize. I mean, I didn't, I, I knew, I mean, I, I knew that the people were nominating me for, for 20 years. So I knew that there was some chance, but there was not uh, no certitude whatsoever. And uh, for and I think that the, only the last year, uh, the year that I got the Nobel Prize, I I, I considered that I had some good chance because I got to the Wolf Prize. The Wolf Prize is a very important prize, and thirty percent of the people that got the Wolf Prize in physics uh, later on got the Nobel Prize. So at that moment, I was uh, trying really to estimate the chances that uh, I am going to have a Nobel Prize, and there was I think that was about 20, 30 percent. But uh, only at that moment, but I didn't know whatsoever the certitude of getting it. And emotionally speaking, what was it like when you heard that you were, of course, going to be the winner? Well, uh, this was uh, strong. Uh, well, uh, you see that uh, the way that works is is, is different. Uh, people is, are going to call you before. Right. Uh, they call you one more or less one year before, and uh, and uh, by chance that year, just because it was a suggestion by a friend of mine, I paid attention to the timetable. And I put, uh, I, I was with uh, my, and uh, I was working at home with my phone nearby. <laughs> and uh, and uh, now the things that happened that I got a phone call, but I get a phone call on the home number, not on the mobile number. And uh, the, my own number is not well known to people because I give most of the people they gave uh, the mobile number. And uh, and I was able to read on the phone that was uh, a number from uh, from Vivo. The code was 46 or 46. And uh, now I was not uh, knew what 46 can what which was accounting for 46. <laughs> But uh, I knew that it's something northern in uh, Europe, northern part of Europe. So uh, there was, uh, the, I think, the secretary of the Nobel Foundation, someone that presented to me as a secretary of the Nobel Foundation, that was saying to me that uh, I won the Nobel Prize. Now, my first reaction was to check, to uh, start to think if this was not a joke. <laughs> because it's clear that there could be someone that makes a joke also from Sweden. I mean, the fact that things were going from some country like Sweden 
and also in Kant's part of Europe, it was not a proof that it was not a joke. So I was very happy, but I was somewhat diffident to try to understand if they could have some uh, some uh, better information to be sure. At a certain moment, I realized that was was certainly not a joke because it was it was very it was very deep, were very concerned of what I should do and what I should not do. The thing that they stressed that they should not say that to anyone. I should not say that to any to the press, any press agent, and so on. Also, if I ask him to put under embargo, because you never trust the people under embargo. That uh, I said, well, maybe if they said you should not move from home because we want to phone you one hour from now because we have to say some words on uh, at the Nobel proclamation. I mean, there will be some interview of you, and therefore you have not to move from from home. So there was this lot of prescriptions. So I said, maybe I can go to the Academy of Lynch and make a phone call from there. She said, no, 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 the, tra the traffic in Rome is uh, very bad. You maybe may get stuck in a traffic jam. <laughs> so there was all this type of thing that they were worried that still it would not happen if there was a joke. And therefore I was convinced that it was not a joke. But at um, the same, at the final, I, they passed to me the phone call to someone of the Nobel Committee that was a friend of mine, which congratulated to me. So I, I mean, the realization was somewhat uh, gradual, uh, gradual. I mean, I was very happy, and however, in the uh, from after the, uh, the one mom, one hour to be very happy. But after one hour, when the proclamation was done, I was, uh, I got an incredible amount of number. Uh, I think I got a something more than 1,000 uh, email congratulations, a few hundred uh, things on. Uh, on, uh, on uh, WhatsApp, congratulations on WhatsApp. After I have to, the, I have to run at the Academy in Che because Academy in Che they were doing uh, some kind of celebration, very short celebration. And after I have to run back to the to the university where they were done another celebration with the minister, director, director of the university and so on. And the next day I had to do something like 15 interviews by phone and so on. So it took a few, uh, the next day I had to give a speech at the House of Commons in, uh, to the parliament in Italy. So, I mean, it was just a few days in which I was running from one place to another place. Judge, oh man, this has been such a pleasure. Tell these guys where they can connect with you, what you've been up to, anything else you would love our audience to check out. Well, I think that I have some presence on social media and on Facebook. Uh, that is something that I, I was interested in also before. I, I was I was one of the first users 
of Facebook uh, in Italy. I started in 2009 and so on. And uh, the, uh, I think that uh, I use social media so much for, uh, generally speaking, for popularized science and also for personal, for personal reasons. One of the reasons that, okay, that is said, and I think that this is, I think that is an important channel. I do not use too much Twitter because I think also the following two social channel is so much. <laughs> and and the book is out now. But the book you, what is it out now? Is it available for people to buy now? Well, I I know uh, the e book in England in English book is out. I mean, uh, you can buy on uh, Amazon and so on. The book in Italy, I think, is, uh, had a reasonable success. It sold uh, 50,000 copies, uh, and they're still selling. But I don't have the numbers for other languages. Amanda, the last question that we ask at the end of all of our podcasts is what makes a life worth living? I think life. I mean... Uh, I, I, I think that, I mean, if you succeed to have the point of following, if you succeed to have a positive attitude toward life, I think life is extremely enjoyable. On the other hand, I can understand that if you have not a positive attitude or you have things are not going well for you, you may have many things that make your life miserable is really a problem. But I think that life, the, the, all the new things that happens is something that makes uh, life, uh, life worth life living. Matt, I want to thank you so much for your contribution to our fundamental understanding of how the world works, for your immense service to science, and of course, for taking the time to chat with me today and for bringing uh so much so many great points and great ideas to our audience so uh man thank you so much thank you so much goodbye <laughs>